Good morning, Westridge. Glad you're here today. So, whether it's a business, uh, organization, church, corporation, whatever it is, we've come to expect that any one of those institutions would be able to define very clearly what it is that they're about, what's the reason that they exist. And we expect them to do it in a short, clear, understandable way that people can remember. So at Westridge, our mission statement is we say that we exist to help people encounter, embrace, and embody the radical love of God. So as we begin, begin this new message series called Radical Love, we're going to stop and take a look at those three key components of what it means to be on this faith journey. So we're going to look in the next three weeks at what it means to encounter God's radical love, what it means to embrace God's radical love, and what it means to embody God's radical love. Now, I think it's important to start off by saying that this is not a checklist. This is not something that you say, encounter, check, done that, embrace, check, done that, embody, check, done that, and then you essentially retire for your spiritual journey. No, this is, this is something, all three of these are elements or components of our faith journey that we develop in an ongoing, long-term relationship with God. So today, we're going to be looking at the idea of encounter. And it's true that at one point, maybe you remember a first encounter with God. But we're not going to look at just one encounter, but the idea that we have a life of encountering God. And there's a reason that we have a life of encountering God. It's because God designed us that way. If you look in Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, verse 11, it says, God has planted eternity in the human heart. Even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end, but what the author is saying is God has put into us supernaturally something in each of our hearts that creates the desire and the capacity and the need for a relationship with Him. And that's the reason that we have these encounters is because God has designed us to encounter him. I want to begin with a, a question. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm just not into organized religion? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I did, and I ask you how many of you have heard someone say that, I bet a big majority of, of you would have your hands up. And as a matter of fact, I bet there's quite a few in here who have actually said those words. So the thing is, is like, there's not much about religion that's very inviting. Not very much that's very attractive to us about religion. Now, that might sound funny coming from someone who's a pastor, but here's what I mean by that. When you look at religion, it doesn't matter what religion, you just put them all together in a bunch. They have a few things in common. And here's what they are. First of all, you have a set of rules this is that how-to, the things that you are expected to do. 
And then you also have this life where you are expected to follow all these rules, which, of course, you can't because no one's perfect. And so then we have this just suffer the consequences because we can't do it. I want to point you to some verses of a guy who writes about what it feels like when he is thinking about living a religious life. Here's what he says. This is from Romans chapter 7. It's the Apostle Paul. He says, I don't really understand myself for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing, that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. Now, keep in mind, this isn't written by some pagan. This, guy, this is a religious person. And he's describing what it feels like when we don't live up to the expectations of religion. And that really is the trap of all religions. The guilt that we feel of not being good enough. So he continues as he's writing, kind of in his true confessions. He continues and he says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Now notice what he's asking when he says, Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? He does not say, What is it that I am supposed to do? And he doesn't say, How is it that I can resolve this? The question is, who? Who will free me from this life of sin? And he gives the answer. In, in Romans 7, verse 25, he says, Thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, one key thing that Paul is pointing out as he's writing to us is that Jesus did not come to start a new religion. Now, that sounds maybe a little bit shocking to many of us because we would probably say that Jesus came and he started the new religion called Christianity. But Jesus did not come to start a new religion. Jesus came to introduce a very different way for us to have a relationship with God. And essentially what he says is, this kind of connection with God does not mean that we have a list of rules that have to be followed. We don't have a set of practices that must be obeyed. Instead, he says, we are about a relationship with Jesus. We encounter and embrace and embody a person. And it's really unfortunate, but it's true, that so many times when we think of God, we think of him in terms of religion. What we think is, we did bad, God is mad, and hell is waiting sort of a thing. Like it's, it's this, this weight of not doing the right stuff. So religion is in no way attractive, but Jesus is. And I want to take us to a story of a man and, and the narrative of his connection, his encounter with Jesus, someone who felt tired because of the religious weight that he felt in his life. So for background, I'm going to go to John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. This happens just before this interaction between Jesus and this man. It says, 
Because of the miraculous signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, now that's just a big Jewish festival that all the people came to celebrate and honor God, many people begin to trust him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Now, one thing you'll notice as you thumb through the pages of the Bible, you're going to see that story after story tells about people who have an encounter with God, an encounter with Jesus himself. And what you'll see is, almost without fail, the people come to him. Almost never do you read about Jesus running after someone, catching up out of breath and saying, hey, 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 can I talk to you for a minute? These people, every encounter that you read about was someone who sought him out. They recognized they had a problem, a problem that they could not resolve, and they came to Jesus believing that he could. So blind people came to him wanting to see. Confused people came to him looking for answers. Scared people came to him looking for security. And there was this magnetic quality about him that people were drawn to him not just because he was a great guy, although there's no doubt that he was, but they were drawn to him because he tells a radically different story about how people have a relationship with God. So in this encounter today, we're going to be looking at someone who has tried religion. I mean, more than the old college try, he's tried religion in an in-depth way, and he's left feeling empty. And he finally chooses to go and find Jesus. And it seems fair to ask, when, we, when we're looking at this guy's life, it seems fair to ask if you have ever felt that way. That you've, you've given religion a real shot, but you're left feeling empty. You just simply got tired of tr so hard trying to follow the rules and feeling that almost none, if any, of the benefits of religion were ever realized. So one of the many people who sought Jesus out was a man by the name of Nicodemus. And I think all encounters with God are unique because we are unique people. We have a unique story. And even the moment when we encounter God, whenever that is and however it is, is unique. And one of the things that was a part of Nicodemus and his encounter with God is that he was literally petrified of what people would think if they knew that he was talking to Jesus. And it's not because... He was afraid that they would think he was a religious freak because he really already was. But he was worried about what his family would think, about what his friends would think, about what his coworkers would think if he's going to consider a run at Christianity. He's worried about his reputation. He's worried about his friendships. He's worried about his standing in the community. I mean... Most of us think, you know, probably a good healthy dose of church or spirituality is a really good thing. But if you start to overdo it, if you get to the place where people can actually see a change in the way you live and the things that you value, well, they're going to think that you've probably become a little bit unstable. And some of us feel that we feel what this man, Nicodemus, felt. 
We're curious, maybe even investigating Christianity. But we're hesitant to pull the trigger because the same thing that Nicodemus felt, we had this question looming, and that is, what's everyone going to think? What if I really jump all in on this thing with Jesus? There's a truth, I think, in this story. And the truth is there are some choices in life that do change our reputation, changes our friendships, may even change our status or standing in the community. And following, choosing to follow Jesus is that kind of choice. So maybe, maybe you can relate to Nicodemus' dilemma because Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night under cover of darkness because he wants to avoid the chatter from his circle of friends that he's now drinking the Kool-Aid and he's going to become one of those Jesus freaks. So when we come to the Bible story, when John is talking about this encounter in John chapter 3, here's how he describes Jesus and Nicodemus meeting up. He says, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, which just means teacher. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. A second truth here, a second truth is this. There was good reason for Nicodemus to investigate or try to find out who this Jesus was and the claims that he made. Because Jesus was doing miraculous things among the people. And it was convincing people to believe in him and to trust him because There were not a lot of people out there who were making blind people see and crippled people walk and sick people well. So Nicodemus knew there was something unique about Jesus and it made Jesus' message believable to him. He actually says, your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. I believe, I believe you say that who you are who you say you are because I've seen what you can do. So John chapter 3, verse 3, in this interaction, it says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't know, but I sort of picture in this moment, Nicodemus has this, well, uh, I kind of had you in the beginning there, but I lost you sort of feeling because Jesus, it seems like, is answering a question that Nicodemus has not even asked. Nicodemus hadn't asked a question, but Jesus, remember, he knows what's going on inside each one of us. And Jesus and Nicodemus had this back and forth about what it means to be born again. And Jesus is just simply saying, every single person needs a new beginning, a do-over, a time when you start over with a new birth, fresh, no baggage from anything in the past. And Nicodemus, confused, scratching his head, says, you mean I have to go back into my mother's womb? And there's sort of a strange interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus as they're trying to work out exactly what this is to have a new beginning in a relationship with God. So it helps to know a little bit about who Nicodemus is as a person because religion was his world. It's an understatement to say that he was an expert in religion because 
He knew every detail of his religion, so much so that he was a teacher of religion. And besides that, he was an expert in practicing his religion because he was in this group called Pharisees. And a Pharisee, quite simply, that's like the top gun of Jewish religion, if you want to put it simply. This is someone, he literally would have memorized the entire Old Testament. He would have had all this stuff memorized word for word, could quote it at any moment. He was someone who followed every detail of religious law at every religious festival. He would have been the one who would have offered the exact right sacrifice, animal sacrifice, grain sacrifice, drink offering, whatever it was that was prescribed, he would do it to the T. When it came to giving and the tithing expected of the Jewish people, spot on. Anything that was required, he would give. So much so that Jesus describes the Pharisees and he says, they are so meticulous, so pedantic about getting every detail right that they dump out the salt shaker, put it in 10 even piles and give God one-tenth of the salt, one-tenth of the cinnamon, one-tenth of the parsley because they want to make sure they've given God exactly what the law says. Man, he tried so hard, Nicodemus, to believe the right stuff and to do the right stuff, but he knew, he knew instinctively that something was missing in his life. And quite simply, he was caught in the trap of religion. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about Nicodemus or if we're talking about you and me. There's a pretty easy way to see if you might be caught in the trap of religion, and it's this. When, when, you, when it comes to God and you think about him, if you have this constant feeling of not being good enough, you might be caught in the trap of religion. The feeling of being trapped in religion is, here's what God has told us to do, we're not doing it, so we live waiting for the other shoe to drop. So when Jesus says, you must be born again, he's explaining what it means to have a completely new beginning with God. He's saying, I'm going to show you how religion is replaced with a relationship. And he uses this metaphor of birth because birth is such an unusual thing. Birth creates relationship where there was none. When my son was first born, I, I now had, I was a dad, a father-son relationship, and my wife had a mother-son relationship. And when my second son was born, there was a brother relationship. And this birth doesn't create just any relationship, but in, it creates the unchangeable relationship of being a part of a family. And you see, up until now, quite honestly, Nicodemus thought that his entire life was to be focused on obeying the Old Testament law perfectly, which was impossible. What God designed is when Nicodemus was reading in that Old Testament about the stories of Adam and Moses and David, Abraham, and all those characters, what God was hoping is that he would see those people also failed miserably. But 
but they were still friends with God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 puts this together in a way that I think clarifies it for us. Paul says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things, for the religious things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. So essentially, that sounds like what it's saying is, what we do doesn't change our relationship with God. It's simply choosing that relationship with Him. But when you put it like that, honestly, doesn't that cause a question to bubble to the top for you? And that is, so are you saying then that God doesn't really care what we do? Because on one, one side, God is saying, I want you to obey and to follow me. These, these, this is the way that I want you to live. And on the other side, God is saying like, I will love you and forgive you unconditionally. No matter what, you will be a part of my family. It creates kind of this conundrum. One of these, it seems like, has to be compromised. If he really wants obedience, and obedience matters, how can he just forgive? And if he's serious about forgiving, if he really will love us no matter what, then what's so important about obedience? What I'd like for you to do, just for a moment, is to imagine a courtroom where you see a judge standing before the court. Someone, the defendant, is, is before him, and there's irrefutable evidence of guilt. And as a matter of fact, this person has openly confessed that all the crimes that he's accused of, he has done. And in that case, we have a certain expectation, something that we believe a judge is obligated to do. Because if a person is innocent, we believe they should be set free without penalty, no matter what. And we also believe that if a judge finds someone who is guilty, that that judge should give them a consequence that fits the crime. Because if an innocent person is punished... Or if a guilty person is set free without consequence, if the judge just sort of like looks and winks like, hey, I like you, you can just go free. We got a name for that, and it's called corruption. It's called injustice. It's called wrong. But imagine in this courtroom, imagine that the cases have been made. The prosecution and the defense have made their cases and the closing arguments are finished. And it's clear because of a mountain of evidence and because someone has made an honest confession, it's clear that this person is guilty and now it's time for sentencing. But in this moment, instead of the judge reading the verdict and reading the sentence that's going to be given, instead the judge slowly stands up comes down from his bench, carefully removes his judicial robe, stands face to face with the defendant, and he says, I'm setting you free, but I'm going to serve your sentence. And then imagine if that person is you. The judge has just broken the two cardinal rules of what it means to fulfill justice. 
A guilty person is just now being set free, and an innocent person is being condemned to a sentence that is not deserved. That's actually what we call grace. And that's what we experience when we really encounter God. I love how Isaiah the prophet says this because he brings this together in a unique way. He says, For the Lord is our judge, our lawgiver, and our king. Now that part's not so inspiring. He's the judge and the lawgiver. But the last line says, He will care for us and save us. That's the kind of judge that God is. He's not the kind of judge who's waiting to tell us what we've done wrong and how we have this big mountain of debt that we now have to pay off with a huge sentence. He's the judge who steps in and takes our sentence. If you're ready to give up on religion and trade up for relationship, Jesus, I believe, is for you. The right answer. And at Westridge, that's what we believe it is to actually encounter God. If you're not a fan of organized religion, I'm going to tell you you're in the right place because we're not about religion here. And I don't think anybody's accused us of being organized, to be honest. I remember way, way back in my spiritual journey, I heard this old pastor. He was speaking, and at the end of his message, he He took his old worn Bible and he held it up. He stood before us and he said, always remember, he said, this is not a rule book. It's a love story. 